0: Right, Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25. I'm going to begin by just maybe jogging your memory a little bit. If you can remember the last time you used a microscope, maybe in grade school. I remember for me it was in college during a bacteriology lab. I was examining some bacteria on a slide and I was able to see some things I wouldn't have been able to see without it. Or maybe a magnifying glass. Someone gifted me with a magnifying glass a few years ago for Christmas. An appropriate and fitting name for a magnifying glass. It's magnifying something that you put it over. Helping bring to light some things that you might not have been able to see on first pass at first glance with the naked eye. And that's a very brief introduction and the reason I chose to use it is because I think it's fitting for our passage today. Genesis 2, 18 through 25 if you've been with us, we've been in the Uncreated, Created series the last several weeks, Genesis 1 through 3. If you remember in Genesis 1, we've already heard God talk about the creation of man and woman, and now we're returning back to the creation of woman today. We could have just as easily seen that the Lord created everything and that it was good and God rested, gave the mandates to fill the earth and to multiply, subdue The earth take dominion over it, then to give the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then lead right into Genesis 3. Yet, in God's sovereignty and providence, he chose not to do that. In Genesis 1, we've seen man and woman created. Today, we get to see again some of the details. God's magnifying something that's already happening, allowing us to see some details we might not would have otherwise seen. He wants us to see and to know what is in here in Genesis 2, 18 through 25. And I believe that it is not just about a man who was alone and a God who said, our God, who said, it's not good for him to be alone, I'm going to give him a helper. And he gives him a helper, and then we move along to the fall. No, the beauty of the gospel is already on display as we see the institution of marriage in this passage. And we're gonna provide some resources in an email follow-up this week on marriage, on singleness, on biblical manhood and womanhood. You can be on the lookout for that email. We won't be able to dive into it all today. But I want us to think about, as we're reading through this, because it's gonna build up to a climactic point here at the end of this passage where man's not just given a woman, not just a helper, but his wife, it says. The institution of marriage. And our marriages here on earth are supposed to be a glimpse of Christ's love for his bride. And we get to see that all the way here in Genesis 2 at the very beginning. So we're going to be talking about marriage today, husband and wife. We're going to be talking about complementary roles within the marriage life and within the church. And as we were studying this passage this week together at Pastoral Development, thought that it would also be helpful to speak into the topic of singleness, which Very common. Paul does it in 1 Corinthians 7. When he's talking about marriage, he's also talking about singleness. We'll also speak into that for a moment here today. We feel it's appropriate and fitting. But let's jump in to our first section, verse 18. What wasn't good? Well, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. This should come as a stark contrast to what we've seen building up to this point because there's six times that the Lord has created something or some things and said it was good. It was good. It was good, it was good, it was good, and it was good. Notice that there has not been any mention of something not being good. And then at the end of chapter one, verse 31, it goes on to say, and God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. Seven times good is used in this last instance, very good. And now we see in Genesis 2:18, it is not good. Do you remember back to Genesis: 128? Eric spoke about this last week, the mandates that were given to fill the earth and to subdue it. Man was in the garden. He was meant to worship and work in the garden. And in filling the earth, we also talked about not just procreation, but the great commission that we see Jesus shares in the New Testament to fill the earth with believers in Jesus Christ. Well, the Lord had put this man into the garden to work it and keep it, and now he's saying it's not good for him to be alone. Man's not saying it, God is. And one commentator writes, what's not good about man's condition is not having another like himself, a helper. And this was Not an accident, not an oopsie-daisy by the Lord. This is all part of his preordained sovereign plan slowly unfolding before our eyes. Remember, he already said man and woman were created in his image. And now we're zooming in, taking a closer look. This wasn't an accident. The Lord was aware of all of this. I believe that this passage was here for a reason to see He wanted man to be created first. He wanted us to see that it wasn't good for this man to be alone, that he needed a helpmate to fulfill what God had called him to. God wanted us to see and learn about the institution of marriage. We see term like wife being used already. Genesis 2. Now, we can find help through marriage in life. That is true. But it's also important to note that isolation is not the norm for created beings. And we can find that in community, in our church family, and in other ways, <clears throat> even outside of marriage. So what's the answer to this? We see it here in this passage. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Let's, let's hone in on that word helper for just a second. In Hebrew, it's ezer. If you do a simple word study, you'll see it's used 21 times in the Old Testament, two of which are here in Genesis. So that means there's 19 other occurrences. And as I read through those other 19 occurrences of ezer or helper, Probably comes as no surprise. Where do you think that was most commonly used? It's been used of the Lord for his people. And we see it over and over and over and over again from the psalmists. Almost all 19 of those other occurrences are speaking about the Lord being a helper to his people. One example, Psalm 121, 1 through 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, I'm not comparing a woman to God. We know that man and woman are both created in his image, but I'm not trying to say that she is like God. What I'm trying to say is that the Lord was a much-needed, vital, important help to his people, and the Lord has identified that this man also needs a helper. Yes, he's already in fellowship with the Lord, but he sees fit that he have a helpmate, a woman, a wife. And they are created Equally, equal in dignity, honor, worth, and value. This isn't to put a hierarchy that that man is better or worth more than woman or the woman is lesser than man. It does not say that in this passage or anywhere else in scripture. But we do see in the rest of Genesis 2 and the other 65 books of the Bible, we, we hear more about men and women and their roles within the home and in marriage and within the church, and we'll share and talk more about that later. But our society has gotten so off with this the pendulum swinging from one side to the other. Men who are apathetic or lackadaisical in their call as Christian men to lead within the homes in their marriage and with their children. All the way to the other side of the pendulum where we read in Ephesians 5, which we'll go to later, how wiser to submit to their husbands. But they forget about verse 21 where it says that we are to, in walking in love, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and they, they see the marriage relationship or the man-woman relationship as a domineering, do what I say when I say it and how I say it, and I don't want to hear anything back from you, which is an incredibly unfaithful way to interpret passages like this in Ephesians 5 and other texts we see in Scripture. So today, as we see this provision of woman for man and the institution of marriage and the glory of the gospel put on display... We also want to take a moment here, as I mentioned earlier, to just speak for a few minutes on this topic of singleness, similarly to how Paul speaks of marriage and singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. I'm happily married to my bride, Michelle. Um, Not a whole lot of people maybe don't know this, but prior to us getting married, I became a believer in middle school. So for 20 plus years was a follower of Jesus as a single male and got married at the age of 36. And that doesn't make me the the best spokesman about singleness. It doesn't mean that I know everything or did everything right. But I know as many of of you do who are single or married who once were single, that there are some major joys that we miss out on and forget to talk about regarding singleness. And yes, there are some, some hardships as well. And even some awkward conversations that you've maybe had with family and friends over the holidays, your grandmother always wanting to ask you when you're going to get married. But one of the, the greatest things that I think has been accidentally done and portrayed and believed sometimes is this idea that the greatest good in one's Christian life is to find a spouse. Spouse. Now, as beautiful as marriage is, we see it here in Genesis 2 and the rest of Scripture. It is beautiful. It is God-ordained. I am saying nothing negative about it. I rejoice in it. It's God-ordained. However, it is not the chief end of man, not the greatest good in one's life. It's bringing the glory to our Lord and Savior. It's worshiping Him and enjoying Him forever. So my goal in this... There's a few other things that I want to share. It's not a tips and tricks on contentment for singleness, no. But some things that I hope we can all hear, I hope serve as an encouragement as we continue to talk about marriage in these upcoming verses. So one, why even address this? Well, it's, it's not addressed often enough. It's also not uncommon, especially in the New Testament, for this particular passage to be talked about. By Jesus, Paul are two examples in Matthew 19 and Ephesians 5 when talking of marriage to reference back to this passage. And as I mentioned already, Paul speaking of not only marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, but singleness as well. Secondly, a a reminder that this passage is way more than a story just about a man and a woman and the institution of marriage. It's about the gospel already being laid out for us that we'll see more as scripture unfolds. And yes, it was not good for Adam, this first man on the planet who was there in the garden with God and the animals in creation. It was not good for him to be alone. And the Lord saw fit to provide for him a helper to help him fulfill these mandates. But what this story is not saying is that every Christian male and female are going to or should get married and get married as quickly as possible. Remember last week, Pastor Eric alluding to the Great Commission, Jesus speaking about here before he went back to heaven saying, go and make disciples of all nations, fill the earth, not just through procreation, but through making disciples. And that's a call that married and singles alike can do and should do and are called to do. And this is important too. Singleness isn't just a good thing because someone may have extra time to devote to serving the church and others in a way that a married individual might not be able to. Listen to this. Singleness is an incredibly virtuous thing that scripture speaks into. And we fail to mention that and remember that at times. And I want you to know here at CCF, part of our church family, we're composed of many parts in one body, like it says in 1 Corinthians 12. Each one a necessity to the healthy functioning of that body. In our Abiding Together document that we read at our members' meetings, we're making commitments in one another's to all other members within the body. We are in need of one another and part of a godly Christian community. And we aren't like Adam was when he was alone in the garden with the Lord. We have other brothers and sisters who are made in God's image to fellowship and be in community with. And as one last final reminder before we begin to move forward to our next point. Marriage will not be in heaven one day. I think that's important to remember in Matthew 22. That's telling. Your Christian life doesn't start once you're married, which is a fairy tale myth that some people believe, despite what some may have said or taught us or what Hollywood has oftentimes deceived us into believing. As amazing and godly As a gospel-centered marriage can be, it's not the most important thing here on earth, incredibly important, but not the most important. It is knowing God, loving God, serving God, and bringing God glory all the days of our lives. And with that being said, we'll now transition into our second point of this helper that's going to be provided that that God has spoken about, verses 19 and 20, why the animals were not the answer, verses 19 and 20. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And we can't miss this last part. It's really important. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. These animals did not provide that. So to get started, let's not skip over some things that might be easy to just quickly read through. God created all of these animals from the ground, just like he did mankind. Then he's not only the creator, but the sustainer of them. He's exercising his sovereignty over them. It says he brought the animals to the man. Adam's going to name them, but these animals are the Lord's creation and they are his. Psalm 50, verse 10, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, in verse 19, we do see that whatever man called these animals, whatever he called every living creature, that was its name. He's beginning to exercise this dominion that the Lord has called him to over the earth. But there wasn't found a helper fit for him. Now, just like it wasn't an accident that man was alone in the garden, that wasn't a mistake or an overlooking of the Lord, neither is this a mistake. This is the Lord's plan slowly unfolding. He already knew that the animals weren't going to be the answer, yet he still has Adam go through this process. That's important to think about. He's naming them, exercising his rule over them, giving them names, but Adam is also attentively looking and examining and waiting for a helpmate. We're not there yet, but in verse 23, when the woman is brought to him, he doesn't just say this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Before that, he says this at last, which means this was probably a long process and he was likely trying to find a helpmate from these animals. The Lord didn't think that the rhinoceros was going to be a helpmate for Adam. That wasn't an oversight, but he still puts him through this process. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. So the giraffe, the long necked long legged animal comes by chewing on leaves the Lord had created. And he says, giraffe, not a suitable helper. Next. And Who knows how long this would have taken, right? You've either been named by a parent or you're going to name a child or you have. And we know that can be a long process. We know some of you waited till the day they were born in the hospital. You had three names. You wanted to see what their ears and their face and their body looked like before you named them because you wanted it to be of the right fit. And that's great. Names are important. But this was likely a very long and drawn out process. And I won't use the word disappointment because this is pre-fall and I don't think disappointment was part of the pre-fall. But I will say there was likely a growing anticipation inside of Adam as animal after animal after animal, giraffe, rhinoceros, donkey, camel, and not a suitable helper, not a suitable helper, not a suitable helper. And I don't wanna take this out of context. We're gonna move on next to our, our next section. But before that, I know that some of us have desires on our hearts that we're praying about that haven't quite yet been fulfilled or not fulfilled in the way that we want them to be or never may be fulfilled. That's important to add on. We don't preach a health and wealth and prosperity gospel where you name it and claim it here at CCF. However, we know that we've prayed about certain things and the Lord hasn't chosen to answer yet. And if he is sovereignly ruling and reigning over those requests that are coming before him, and if there is something he sees... You need, remember he said that it was not good for Adam to be alone. He's gonna provide a suitable helper. He will. Well, sometimes the answers to our prayers come in different ways and come after long periods of time. Like a season of singleness in anticipation for marriage. Or like a church plant that we thought we were gonna be a lot further along with, but the Lord knew exactly where we would be today, February 4th, 2024. Or like the kid who wants a car and at 15 his parents... Make him or her start to work to make money for that car. They could easily buy it for him sometimes, but they want him to work. They want her to work, to to save up money, to enjoy that thing that they're working for. One commentator, Kenneth Matthews, says that this process is likely God preparing the man to value his mate. We don't always recognize and realize the reasons why some of our prayers aren't answered. We have some hints of it in James 4. You don't have because you don't ask is one reason. And another reason is because when we ask, we ask with wrong motives. You know, for selfish desires. But what we see here is God is not only a creator, but a provider. And so now as we transition into our third point, we've now seen man's alone. It's not good that he's alone. God's going to make him a helper. He brings the animals to him. He names them. That's not part of the plan for a suitable helpmate. And this is really exciting what we see in these next three verses. Point number three, a helper fit for man. Point number three, a helper fit for a man, verses 21 and 23. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he'd slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. A couple of things to point out here in verses 21 and 22. Again, we could just quickly read those in 15 seconds and move along. Let's not miss out on the fact that God is continuing to drive this process. He puts Adam to sleep. No anesthesia. We have our first surgery. Taking a bone out of someone's side. And then our first healing. It says, it just says it. Closes the place up with flesh. And then... He takes this bone and makes a woman out of it and brings it, bring her, brings her to the man. Now, I don't want to spend much time here, but an illustration. The tallest building in the world, the, the, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, in the UAE, 128 meters tall, it's seven and a half football fields, can be seen on a clear day from 60 miles away. For context, that's further than from here to the Bengal stadium. $1.5 billion to build, the concrete weighing the same as 100,000 elephants, and this blew me away, 22 million man-hours to build it. Kind of nerded out for a minute on my calculator. Uh, that, that was 203-point-something people that would have worked from 18 to, let's say, 70 for retirement, 40 hours a week. It would have taken 203 of those individuals to build that. 22 million man hours. Over six years, they got it completed, and there were some days where there were 12,000 people working on it. Built over six years, 12,000 people working on it, $1.5 billion. And it's beautiful, the tallest building in the world. But it's not a living being. As amazing as it is, it doesn't breathe, doesn't talk, doesn't move. Maybe it does move with the wind a little bit. Okay, so. Six years. God put him to sleep, put man to sleep, opened up his side, took out a rib, closed it up with flesh, and made a woman a living, breathing creation. That's the God that we serve. We could just quickly skip over those verses as if it was just no big deal. It's a huge deal. This is our God, a creator. And then, verse 22, same words as he brought the animals to him, he brought her to the man. This would have struck a chord in his mind. Right, he woke up not woozy from the surgery, surgery, but he woke up knowing God was in control of this entire process, and this would have been a sweet gift. He knew what was going on, not like a kid. Uh, this happened Christmas 2023 in the Ivester family. I won't say if it was one of our kids or a relative's kid, but <laughs> ripping open a present, paper going everywhere, ripping open the box and joyfully like thank you so much this is awesome i love it what is it (laughs) that's not what was going on with adam he has gone through this process of naming these animals had them brought to him they weren't a suitable helper he was looking for one anticipating god providing that and then he wakes up from his sleep and god has brought her to him like he did the animals Now, before we jump to his response, I know you're thinking, why the rib? There's a lot out there on the rib. I'm going to do this a little faster here. You've probably heard Matthew Henry. I'm not going to quote him word for word, but something along the lines of, it was the rib not taken out of the head to be ruled by the woman, not taken out of the foot to be trampled upon, but taken from the side as an equal, under the arm, as a means of protection and close to the heart to be loved. And those are all true and beautiful and right. I wouldn't go to Genesis 2 to make that statement, but it's beautiful and it's right and it's good. And whether this is the case or not, I'm still gonna mention it briefly. This is a man who had his side open and there was a wound, at least for a period of time. And from that wound, although this was passive on the man's part, God took from that side. The man gave of himself for his bride. A wound on the side of a man giving of himself for his bride, does that strike a chord in your mind or your heart? We know that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whether the rib was chosen for this reason or not, was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our sins. Praise the Lord for that. Remember marriage, an image of Christ's love for the church, the beauty of the gospel on display here. But what I think and I believe we really need to focus in on Whether there was another bone that could have been used or not, those things are true. Men and women are equal. The man is to lay down his life for his bride, to be a protector, to love her and serve her. But I appreciate how Longman and Garland stated it, (laughs) all that out the window. They say, no particular meanings to be attached to the rib, dot, 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 but rather to the rib and the flesh as showing the woman to be in the same substance as the man. They said that is the really important thing, and I would agree. Those animals were were not the same. They weren't of the same nature as Adam, which is why they weren't a suitable helper. They couldn't help him fulfill those mandates to procreate and fill the earth and to subdue it. The rhinoceros, cheetah, monkey, ape, none of them could do that. But this woman was taken out of his side, out of him, the same substance. Now, same in a sense, but not exactly the same. We'll talk more on the complementary roles of marriage between man and woman in the marriage and in the church, but they are of the same nature, the same substance. And now we see his response. In verse 23, the man says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He excitedly, the long awaited anticipation now comes to a climax. He responds and says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Now, the Hebrew name for man and woman is ish for man and Isha for woman. You can see ish in both of those, right? So similar, but not exactly the same. Kind of like in English, man and woman, you have man in both of those. Speaking to a little bit here of this similarities, but not identical in their roles of the same nature. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, equal in the eyes of the Lord, made in God's image of equal worth, value, dignity, honor, and respect, yet not exactly the same. We know that from a, a physical and anatomical standpoint, but also what we see in scripture and even here about the roles of men and women in the church and in the marriage relationship. Big point here, a suitable helper was now found, and found, I think we'd quote that, was provided for by God. He knew that it wasn't good for a man to be alone and provided a suitable helper, a woman, a wife, and he rejoices. Remember, brothers and sisters, like we talked about those long-awaited prayer requests, whatever they might be for marriage or for health or for a church plan or whatever it might be, that God is sovereignly ruling and reigning in control of all things and his perfect timing not according to ours and our desires or circumstances and felt needs, but is working for our good and his glory. Now the reminder and obvious one, man and woman were both created by God, made in his image of equal worth, value, dignity, honor. I'm gonna mention that probably six or seven more times throughout this message. It's important to remember. So again, before we move to our next point, kind of recap before point number four, verses 24 and 25. Man, it's not good that he's alone. I'm going to make him a helper, fit for him. The animals come, he names them. None were a good fit. God puts him to sleep, opens his side, takes out a rib, makes a woman, closes his side, heals the flesh, then presents that glorious gift, his bride, to him. He rejoices this at last, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. The institution of the first marriage we see in scripture the gospel on display which now transitions us to verses 24 and 25 covenantal marriage prior to the fall covenantal marriage before the fall verses 24 and 25 therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed now I do understand why and it's significant that 24 becomes, comes before verse 25. I just want to say this. Pastor Rogers next week is going to pick up where we've left off, go back to the, the command not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in 2.16 and 17 and then speak about the fall in Genesis 3. We're not there yet, but simply put, the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. Sin hadn't entered the world yet. If you look at nakedness in the old testament is often associated with humiliation guilt comes around that as well but there's no shame because there's no guilt there's nothing to be humiliated about and to worth mentioning what the lord is calling the man to in verse 24 sets up verse 25 for the man and the woman to live in unity and not be ashamed of one another in their nakedness Let's spend some time now on verse twenty-four. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife; the two becoming one flesh. Therefore, is okay. Everything that we've said up until this point. In light of all that, here's some things I want to say to you about marriage. First and foremost, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, this is not talking about not honoring your father and your mother. This isn't talking about not loving your father and mother, not being able to be concerned any longer about some of their needs as they get older. That's not what this is talking about. This isn't even talking about leaving the land necessarily. Oh, you have to move so many miles away. No, it was very common in this culture for the man to stay around where his family was and the wife become a part of that household. We also see in the next book of the Bible, Exodus, the Ten Commandments. We're called to honor our father and mothers that's not what it's saying so maybe there's then a question mark well what is it saying and I think simply put notice that this is addressed to the man the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife that your priorities are changing now one commentator said it well upon marriage a man's priorities change. beforehand his first obligations were to his parents and afterwards they are to his spouse your wife is your number one now My wife and I actually sometimes will refer to one another as our number twos. We know what we mean by that. The Lord is our number one. We are each other's number one here on earth, right? There's no other relationship that should supersede that. It doesn't mean you can't love on your parents well after you get married. It's not saying turn your back on them, but she becomes the most important relationship here on earth and supersedes all others. And just like Christ has laid down his life for the church, which we know in the New Testament, remember the gospel is already being put on display. He needs to lay down his life to love and to serve and to care and to protect her. She becomes his new number one. And when it says to hold fast to his wife, you'll see some other translations on the screen. I, I really do like the ESV, but also the King James. Cleave unto. You've, you've all heard the, the saying, leave and cleave, right? King James Version. I looked up just some, I, I like to just Google some simple definitions sometimes. Listen to this. Um, this was helpfully shared with me this week as well. The cleave unto is like to be glued to or adhered to or to join to Something. Or even further, to adhere firmly to and closely or loyally and unwaveringly. The ESV, we do see hold fast to. And this is highlighting the covenant commitment of marriage in God's good design here in Genesis 2. We we see the same phrase used in Deuteronomy ten twenty. Remember, we talked about all the other examples of helper as in the Old Testament twenty one times, and most of them are about the Lord being the helper to His people. Listen to this same phrase, holding fast, how it's spoken to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy ten twenty. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. Promise keeping, covenant keeping. This isn't just a, a whimsical, quick decision made about marriage. It's very flippant and non-committal. If I'm not happy or satisfied or in love anymore, we just end it and go find a new spouse. No, it's covenant keeping from the beginning. With, that was God's design. Amen to that. One other quote I'll share with you. One commentator said it this way. Israel's repeatedly urged to stick to the Lord. Several references in the Old Testament. And the use of these terms forsake and stick or leave and cleave or leave and hold fast to, it's in the context of Israel's covenant with the Lord suggesting that the Old Testament viewed marriage as a kind of covenant, which it is. God telling the man after being presented his wife, Leave your father and mother, hold fast to your wife, become one flesh. It's our covenant, commitment, responsibility, and pledge. Now, I know that some of you may be asking, well, what about divorce? And I know that's a really sensitive subject, and I want to address it as such. We won't go into the depths of that today. However, again, we're talking about pre-fall. God's original design and plan was for this to be a covenant commitment for a lifetime. Remember how I said that Jesus and Paul both referenced this passage talking about the creation account? There's an example here in Matthew 19. I just want to briefly read a couple verses to you. Verses 5 and 6, when asked about divorce, Jesus points back to Genesis 2, this same passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is Jesus speaking. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Whatever, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. This was all part of God's good design from the beginning. Well, then they continued to question him. Well, what about Moses and the divorces that have been permitted? Well, The simple response that Jesus gives in verse 8. And I know this isn't uh, just a simple thing in the lives of people who have dealt with this. I know this can be hard, but listen to what he says. Matthew 19, verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And ever since the fall of Genesis 3 all the way to today, society and culture tries to tear apart the home. Satan's out to kill, steal, and destroy in so many other ways, but that specifically is something he's seeking to destroy. Similarly, when it says they became one flesh, yes, this is talking about sexual intimacy, allowing them to be able to procreate and bring life into this world, but that's not the only thing that's being talked about. Regarding sexual intimacy, unfortunately, sin has corrupted this as well. Just like marriage, God had a good design for sexual intimacy, and it was originally designed by God to be a a good gift, exercised in the context of a heterosexual, monogamous, covenant-keeping marriage relationship. But similarly, we know the fall has marred and scarred this, however this was and still is today. God's good gift and design for sexual intimacy. There's a few verses on the screen that you can write down or jot down if you want to about purity, about holiness, about adultery. But it's not just a sexual act of intimacy, this one flesh idea. Remember, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, the two becoming one sexual intimacy, yes. But they now have a deep, united, one flesh, one spirit of the same nature, committed, covenant relationship to honor one another and honor God and seek for all of their days and in all of their endeavors to bring glory to him in perfect fellowship with him. How beautiful. That's the Lord's design in marriage all the way back to Genesis 2. Now, I know we've mentioned several times about the man and the woman being created equal. And I'm going to lean into Paul's words now in Ephesians 5. You can turn there or you can read these verses on the screen. Ephesians 5, 22 through 30 is where I'm going to read first. Not only of equal value, worth, honor, respect, dignity, but complementary roles. They're of the same nature, but not identical. Remember, physically, anatomically, we know there's differences, but we also see in Scripture, and this is a great place to view it, that for the man and the woman, there are different roles within the church, within the marriage relationship. So let's read these together. Ephesians 5, 22 through 30. Wives, submit to your own husbands. The beauty of the gospel on display through marriage in Genesis 2, now seen and a reminder for us in Ephesians 5 and other places and even today, that this good gift of God-ordained marriage is meant to image Christ's love and self-sacrificial laying down of his life for his church and his people. Now, you may be saying, ah, Taylor, you you just jumped to Ephesians 5. What's the connection there? What does this have to do with Genesis 2? These next three verses, Genesis five thirty-one through 33, Paul does the same thing Christ did. It goes right back to these verses in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The beauty of the gospel on display from the beginning in marriage A reminder of christ's love for the church and i now just want to make an appeal to anyone here today who may not quite understand or fully understand what all this means or maybe you've heard about christ laying down his life for his bride the church but you've never chosen to accept him as your lord and savior today i want to say to you that this again is pre-fall no sin had occurred yet here on earth Pastor Rogers next week, Genesis 3, is going to be able to talk about that more with us. But when sin entered, Satan came knocking, the serpent enters in Genesis 3. Sin enters this relationship between man and woman, and that sin separates man from God. God is holy and perfect and without fault. And now man and woman and every human being created after him will also be born into this world with sin, not able to stand before or be in right relationship with this holy God. We too once were. All of us today who were believers in Jesus Christ, at one time we weren't, and we were separated from God. But the Lord sent Jesus Christ, his son, who lived a perfect life here on earth. He taught, he healed, he preached the good news. He was captured, crucified, hung on a cross, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins. They killed him on that cross. He shed his blood. He was then buried, but three days later rose again, came back, gave the great commission to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, all around the world, fill the earth with believers, share the good news. And he's now ruling and reigning at the right hand of his father in heaven. But there is an invitation that that shed blood be for the forgiveness of sins for those who would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They would be saved. That blood would wash those sins away. And that separation that sin caused now allows us through Christ's shed blood to be back in right relationship and fellowship with God, just like Adam and Eve before the fall. And if that's not something that you have ever committed to or you want to learn more about it, I encourage you to ask a friend who maybe brought you or stick around and come down to the front afterwards would love to share with you what it means to enter into a relationship with jesus christ as your savior how he laid down his life for his bride the church his people and for those of us in here who are already believers let this be an encouragement to you all the way back in genesis two we see the gospel on display this is more than a passage about a man and a woman and as glorious as marriage is this is about jesus christ and his love for the church